but dying from a snake bite correlates very, very closely with poverty. It is a disease of, of poor people, which is why we see the hugely disproportionate impact in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, like, you know, places like India. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. So if you guys have listened to us before, you know that we have shirts for sale, like the one that I'm wearing right now, snakes and beer shirt, just dropped my phone, uh, Port City Python shirt, we have the new Rugrats Reptile shirt up there, and um, you know, any money that you put into a shirt usually goes to either support the podcast or support the YouTube videos or do anything that we do here, and then also... You can click on our Amazon links, which all you do is click on the links below in the description of this podcast or on any of our YouTube videos. It will say like some of my favorite herb supplies. And then if you buy anything on Amazon, it doesn't have to be those items. You can click on those items and then go buy something else. And then we get a small kickback from that from you just doing your shopping normally. Yes. What else do we have? Uh, heads up. <laughs> Carpet Fest. Heads we up. say this every week. Southern Carpet Fest, May 4th and 5th in Elmo, Texas at Ryan Sullivan's House of Ivory Connection. Hit up Evan Browder of Carpet Cartel or us, I suppose. If you want or more Ivory details. Or Ivory King or whoever you really want to. Yeah. I mean, we'll get more details as it comes closer. I feel like it's getting closer and closer. And Still a month. Yeah. <laughs> more excited, than a month. Though? Yes. We're okay. going to have to get the auction going and stuff like that and try to beat Ian Bissell with his like $1 million <laughs> raise for USR. The damn thing. I don't think you can beat Ian. All right. Today we have <laughs> today we have Ray Morgan of the Venom interviews. So um, Ray actually lives in Costa Rica. So Ray, can you tell us a little bit of what you do and then what you're doing in the States right now? Okay. Hey, guys. Uh, thank you for having me on, first of all. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I, I uh, most of my time is spent these days uh, editing video. Um, most of my work centers around science communication stuff in one uh, one way or another. So the one that most people are aware of is uh, the Venom Interviews uh, documentary film that was released um, almost exactly two years ago uh, in March of 2016. So it's been out for a couple of years. Um, my current project is dealing with uh, snake bite and treatment in sub-Saharan Africa. And I guess we can dig into that in some detail later on. Um, as far as Costa Rica goes, I, I, I moved down there about uh, four years ago, a little over four years ago. And I live up in the north part of the country near Lake Arenal. And um, uh, my work there in connection with snakes is mostly uh, educational. I do some training programs for things like fire departments and tour guides and and whenever possible the general public i like to talk to people and get them not to kill things and help them appreciate things and when they find snakes that they don't want uh which are very common it's the tropics uh call me instead of uh killing them so that's that's a very satisfying part so my indoors is is chopping up video my outdoors is moving snakes around 
So obviously you're from the States. So what triggered you to move to Costa Rica? Uh, yeah, I'm originally from uh, California. I uh, lived in Southern California almost all my life. Uh, my wife and I were down in, we were down in uh, Mexico in uh, I think 2000 or 2001. And uh, long story short, we ended up in Costa Rica accidentally on a, a side excursion from Mexico. And we just completely fell in love with the place. And it took a, it took a, a few years to get ourselves where we could make a living working remotely. Uh, we both work with clients. Um, you know, our clients are in the U.S. or in Europe, or uh, in my wife's case, they're all over the world. And so we're able to do that as long as we have an internet connection. And so once we got to that point, uh, we said, "Let's pull the trigger. Let's go. Let's go down to Costa Rica." We explored the whole country, uh, you know, coast to coast and top to bottom. And and the area that we really love is is around the lake. It's the only big lake in the country, and it's mid altitude. It's cool. Um, our area has a very long rainy season. It's very wet about rains for about nine months of the year. Uh, the rain is backing off right about now, but it starts again at the end of May. So, um, as far as the animals around the area go, we have, um, well, the stuff that usually I get called to remove are things like, uh, both asper, the big lancet vipers. Uh, we have lots of eyelash vipers, lots of hognose vipers. We have four different coral snakes, uh, depending on how you count them. Um, so we have a lot, lot of animals around there. So were you always interested in, in reptiles, or is this something that came once you moved? Oh no, I um, I started you know catching lizards when I was five years old, and by the time I think I was seven, I was uh, into snakes, and by the time I was eight or nine, I had taken over the entire garage. I I had booted the cars out and uh, the entire walls of the garage floor to ceiling were lined with snake cages. And the interior part was dedicated to raising rodents to feed them all. So I think about, by the time I was 12, there was probably 200 snakes in the garage. You have some very forgiving parents. <laughs> yeah, oh true. yeah. It was, uh, in retrospect, I can't even believe that I got away with what I got away with. Uh, but yeah, they were, they were pretty tolerant and, and pretty indulgent. Um, and I lived in uh, I lived in Chino Hills at the time, and in uh, Chino Hills at the time was a very rural area. It was kind of the leading edge of development going into the wilderness in that part of Southern California, which is kind of it's not quite desert, but it's kind of drier grassland, you know, until it's completely built up. So we had lots of king snakes and gopher snakes and ringneck snakes. We had uh, red diamond rattlesnakes, um, some coach whips, uh, you know, all all the usual snakes that people find in Southern California. And then by, you know, within a couple of years when people start realizing, Oh, this guy's into snakes, then uh, I'd have things like, you know, I get a phone call at seven o'clock in the morning saying, Hey, there's a big gopher snake in your mailbox and it's really angry and you better take it out <laughs> before the, before the mailman gets there. Um, so that, you know, that kind of pattern, once you're into stuff, people call you when they find stuff. And strangely enough, that's still what happens down in, in Costa Rica. I have, you know, a huge amount of the herping I do is herping that other people do for me. They find stuff and call me and all I have to go do is pick it up. So where did your interest in venomous reptiles start? Um, you know, I, uh, <laughs> as I went through the venom interviews project, I asked myself that question a lot. Uh, and I, because I was asking other people that question and, 
so I had uh, a hundred hours or a couple of hundred hours of driving time to think about that. Um, for the Venom Interviews project, I was interested in telling um, a story about uh, people who work with uh, reptiles, work with snakes in uh, specifically, um, some story that hadn't really been told before. And I went through a couple of options. Uh, one of the things I considered was the, the story with the Burmese pythons in South Florida. Um, I looked at that and it looked like somebody else was kind of covering that story at the time. Uh, but one thing that really occurred to me is that people who work with venomous animals, uh, you know, but both the, the animals and the people who work with them were so badly portrayed, so badly mischaracterized, um, you know, to the point that they're almost cartoon characters. Uh, so I became interested in telling that story. Um, and so the film is, is largely about, it's more about the people than the animals. There's plenty of animals and there's plenty about the animals, but it's really meant to tell the story of the people who, who, you know, the real people who do the real work with the animals. Yeah. Um, to, to me, that's such a polarizing group as far as venomous, because here in Texas, obviously, we have a lot of ven venomous keepers. And you kind of have yeah. like 25% where you're like, nah, dude, I don't want to go near you. And like the 75% yeah. of people doing the good stuff. How do you promote the people doing the good stuff and kind of, you know, weed out who's doing the bad stuff? <laughs> Oh man. Well, I, I guess there's a couple of answers to that. Um, uh, so I was in Texas yesterday. Actually, I woke up this morning in, in Texas. I flew out of Austin very, very early this morning. Um, I was doing a presentation to uh, the Austin Herp Society up, you know, Tim Cole's group up there. And they're a group of, you know, excellent, wonderful, responsible, very experienced keepers. Um, but as far as how you separate them, I I really try not to spend a lot of time on um, you know, people who are in it for ego reasons or uh, people who take, who do unnecessarily risky things with the animals. Uh, people who are really primarily concerned with daredevil type stuff or drawing attention to themselves that it doesn't interest me very much. I'm, I'm kind of a nerd in that I gravitate toward the, the scientific work that's going on. And so I'm interested in people who are doing, you know, legit science with the animals or even even private keepers who just take the animals seriously and are serious about learning about them. Um, so I guess it's just kind of my nature that that's what I gravitate to. And the other stuff that you mentioned, the, the, the 25 percent, um, I just try not to spend too much time. I, I don't I tend not to engage very much with it. I have a hard time being nice when when. Um, you know, if, if something, if somebody's doing something that's bad for the community, um, you know, if it's something you care about, it's hard to be nice when somebody's making things worse. And so that's not healthy. And I try to spend most of my time with, uh, you know, people that are making things better. And there's lots of them. Yeah, we have a particular guy here in Texas who likes to make things worse. And he just said <laughs> not too long ago. I, I could guess. Yeah, I, enough said. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know what you're I talking about. I don't know who you're talking about, but let's not go well, down that road. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you know, like... things, things like that don't, they, they're not, they're not productive and you can, yeah. you can call people out and you can, you can make it personal and you can make it a fight. And that doesn't, it do, you put people in a position where they feel like they have to defend themselves and the mm -hmm. people who are doing 
you know, reckless things, it's been my experience that they're not really receptive to a mentoring or criticism, even if it's constructive criticism, they're not, not usually wide open to that. No, so this guy got called out by everyone in the community and, and yeah. proceeded to do it more. So, yep. subject. so I mean, yeah. didn't really help. <laughs> well, you know, there's always going to be that. And there's discussion around that, that happens in, you know, it, along the lines that this is something unique to the reptile community. And it, you know, it, it really isn't, you have, uh, you know, if you talk to um, people who scuba dive or people who skydive or people who ride motorcycles or people who hang glide or do any, you know, recreational activity where there's an element of risk, um, you'll find a div divisions in those groups as well, where there's people who take their safety seriously, take people who take their sport seriously. Um, and they, they tend not to embrace people who uh, do reckless things and make it you know, make it worse. Um, so that's not a herp. That's not a herp world thing. That's a, that's is something that you'll find in any, you know, av vocation or avocation where, uh, where there's an element of risk involved. Absolutely. Do you feel, we've kind of talked about this before with other podcasts. Do you feel like there should be some body that controls, oh. you know, like U.S. Arc is, for the us against other snake people. But like, do you think there should be some organization who kind of, that polices ourselves? Yeah. Oh, wow. That, what a can of worms. We, that's policing ourselves is not something that we have done uh, a very good job at. Um, so, so I'll try not to stray too far off your question. Should there be a body? Yeah. I mean, that would be the ideal situation would be if we policed ourselves. Um, because if we leave it to somebody else to police us, or we put uh, we put ourselves in a position, or we put the public in a position yeah. where they feel like they need to police us, right? Um, you it's know, when that's done well. legislatively, yeah. well, yeah, it's not going to be what we want. But also, when it's done legislatively, it tends to be uh, it tends to be badly done. Um, you know, whether it's at the municipal level or county or even state level. The laws that deal with, you know, whether it's venomous animals or exotics in general or tigers or large constrictors, those laws are not written by people who know the animals well, who know husbandry well. They don't know, you know, they don't know the community. So they're written by people who don't have uh, the community's best interest involved, and they're usually sloppy. They're clumsily written um, and very rarely does uh, a state come up with something that's that's really good now florida has probably um, and, and there's there's plenty to, to criticize about the the licensing program for venomous in florida but of all of the licensing you know state level licensing programs in the u.s florida probably has the the best uh well thought out model um it is arguably a little excessive in that it requires a thousand hours of experience per family. So if you are keeping venomous colubrids, that's a different thousand hours than the lapids. And that's a different thousand hours than oh. um, different from, from vipers. And I like that. I yeah, obviously, well, that's... you think it's too much. Yeah. Well, that, 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 well, it's one of the ways it doesn't make sense is, you know, 
Uh, what could you do for a thousand hours with, with Halo Monsters? True. Um, what is there to talk about? <laughs> and then if you cut it in another way, uh, it would be the same license that would allow you to keep, um, you know, small elapids like, you know, Cape Coral Cobras, which are, they're not among the most dangerous elapids out there. But that same license allows you to keep Mambas and King Cobras, uh, which are, you know, those can be phenomenally dangerous animals in the wrong hand. So uh, it could be better. But there's the good things that happen in Florida are that uh, caging is inspected, um, that they don't prohibit it outright. But one of the most remarkable things is that the herp community has engaged with, you know, Florida uh, authorities. And there's an there's an open and ongoing dialogue. You know, the people in in Florida, um, um, you know, Department of Wildlife are are Florida Fish and Game, I think it is. They're engaged with the herp community, and we have good people. People like Jack Vicente, um, uh, who frequently represents uh, the interest of of private keepers, uh, and 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 a good number of others who, you know, they don't sit back and complain about it. And they don't wait till after something's happened and they don't, you know, they don't get loud with empty bravado about how I'm not going to adhere to these laws. They actually engage with the authorities and have a hand in crafting the legislation that impacts them. And I think that maybe more than anything else is a, the best example that, that herpers could follow in other states of just, you know, getting engaged. We're not, as a community, we are not very good at that. Yeah, that's something that in Texas is so very clear when it comes to things like rattlesnake roundups. It's that Texas Parks and Wildlife is actually on the side of roundups for the most part, rather than yeah. wildlife. What the fuck is, does that doesn't make any sense? Yeah, the, well, there's the the roundups. You know, letter of the law. The roundups are not even legal, but they're you know they're essentially still officially sanctioned, and they turn a blind eye to the animal cruelty aspects of it and, and things like that. Texas and Oklahoma too are, are a couple of really, really difficult uh, cases. And, you know, we hope that, you know, over time they will either through uh, necessity or enlightenment will kind of turn those festivals around and make them something a little more productive. But I think you're right that there is something special about the mindset in those States that, makes them very resistant to change right and i mean obviously i don't know if you'd know this but you talk about wildlife but kind of like ray said is our community out there doing what we need to do to change it well we are very out there especially we are, people like todd and, and todd right todd rar is, so, is which yeah. so thankful for rar should we plug them i feel like, we should, I feel like no, we should you got it. we've already <laughs> okay. done a whole podcast well, on it yeah um but i still i don't feel like rar has the backing of the whole snake community right i mean we don't really we don't even collectively between the rattlesnake festival people and now todd and that that's divided now they're not even on the same page. Yeah, well, one one of our handicaps, I think, is a community. I mean, hurt people. Um, <laughs> is, you know, collectively, we are not the the most socially well-adjusted people. We tend not to get <laughs> along. I mean, we we tend not to get along well with others. And I don't know if you know we're herpers because we're we're misfits, or we're misfits because we're herpers. It's you know, it could be a little of both. But um, you know, we don't we don't do cooperation very well. Mm -hmm. 
and at the same time, the herp world is big enough where there are, uh, you know, subdivisions of it or special interest groups, you know, groups that are specifically interested in rattlesnake preservation or rattlesnake roundups or venomous keep, you know, venomous rights for the private keepers. And that is a very, very long way from people who breed leopard geckos. Right. Um, those groups don't, you know, they're all under the herp umbrella, but they don't overlap very much. In fact, I would guess that there's probably more overlap between venomous keepers and people who work with raptors and other birds, but uh, but specifically raptors. There's probably more overlap there are there than there are with people who you know work with ball pythons or turtles or mm-hmm. or things like that. Um, you know, it's a, it, it's a big world, and to get everybody pulling toward one goal is uh, it, you know it looks good on paper. I, I don't know how to do that. Yeah, I kind of want to bring up something that is also controversial because I kind of I'm so interested in it because of like I'm interested in all things that are like superhuman and like like human optimization. So so in one way, I'm like intrigued by self envenomation. Right. And in another way, I'm like, all those dudes are fucking crazy. And I'm not sure which way. is Oh, I actually wanted to talk about this. Okay, cool. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, it's a, so here's here's the upside. It's your show, so we can we can talk about it. It actually self immunization is the one topic on my own group, on the Venom Interviews group on Facebook, that is called out as having worn out its welcome. Um, and because of the fact that there's a lot of it, the discussion gets really really noisy really quickly, um, and it, it it turns usually it, the conversation turns sour, and within you know, 30 minutes, it's a full-on bar fight, and nobody wants to deal with that. Um, but I, I guess I would let you guys drive that. Where do you where do you want to take that discussion? Well, I feel like there is some merit first. to it, but go on. Okay. Total quicks. And we're venomous noobs, so it's like this. Well, I'm, I'm a us. snake noob and definitely venomous. <laughs> but just from knowing you in a little bit, um, and I even typed to you earlier, what's the name of the guy? Bill Haas. Bill Haas. Yeah, so it's like... Yeah. My introduction to like historical venomousness was obviously through him and talking about Bill Haas and like looking at the books and like all and that. And I love Bill Haas. He, yeah, he, well, yeah. Like, we have the same birthday. You know that? That's weird. Yeah, no, it is okay. weird. But you know, like you you have books. You almost bought even more books about this guy. Signed like, copy of yeah. He, he, he was trying to convince Cobra's- him to get a signed copy. Yeah. Was out of our budget. For a book. It was expensive. For a book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so my my experiences through him and hearing that, I'm like, that shit is crazy. Like, no, never, yeah. ever. Like, I don't know. I don't know anything else past Well, I'll him, bring up the first issue is that he said that he cured people from giving them blood transfusions. But were those people going to die if they didn't get his blood? I don't know. We don't, uh, we don't well, have control. Yeah, there's. But go ahead. Right. Please. There's no control. There's. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no way to answer that. Um, So. There, there's a bit of mythology around Bill, but Bill really did do some pioneering things. I mean, he he did save people, or at least treat people, or his blood was used to treat people um, who were envenomated by things for which there was no antivenom. And so that those are real stories, and that happened um, that happened a good number of times. It wasn't a once or twice thing. I think it was, uh, I think it was around twenty times, or somehow the number twenty two like is stuck in my head. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it was uh, it happened a good number of times. Um, at the time that Bill was doing it, uh, you could definitely make the argument that immunizing himself, um, you know, when he's working with, you know, a hundred species of snakes, uh, most of which had no antivenom. I mean, this started seventy years ago. Um, so working with animals for which there is no antivenom uh, is one scenario where I can imagine that you could make a persuasive argument that um, that something like that. You notice I'm choosing my words carefully, but <laughs> I, I can I can I, I can imagine um, I can imagine a compelling argument in that scenario. Uh, um, the list of species for which that is still true is you know is diminishing. It's a smaller and smaller list. Um, of species. So uh, there's pretty much antivenom for virtually all the cobras in the world. There's for most, most large viperids that are uh, responsible for snake bite morbidity and mortality around the world. There's antivenom for those. Um, there are certainly some very, um, you know, very serious snakes for which there is no antivenom. Um, one that comes to mind are the Malaysian blue coral snakes, the Calliophus from Southeast Asia. Um, that is a, amazingly serious snake um it has a venom unlike any other uh you know any other elapids uh, in fact in some ways it's more similar to some marine animals it does some really really there's there's no no snake bite that's a good way to die but that one's especially By marine animals do you mean like you know like cone snails okay yeah like like spastic paralytics um which typically the paralytics from snake venom are flaccid paralysis where things stop working whereas the spastic paralysis from calliophus causes everything to work all at once so, it's so like it becomes a muscle spasm type deal or? yes yeah full body full body muscle spasms um and so uh when brian fry found that in uh, i think it was it's been about 18 months since that was published uh there was the first time that toxins like that had been identified in snake venom so kind of a cool discovery but anyway back to the original question um are there cases where it makes any sense to do it? If you're working with an animal like that, for which there's no antivenom, and you're collecting anti, uh, you're collecting venom for, say, research or for production of antivenom, well, somebody's got to be the first guy to to milk that snake. Um, a horse. And yeah, <laughs> Can a horse do it? put it right into that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, that. Um, uh, you, you gave a horse a full dose of that. I'm fairly sure it would be lethal to a horse. Uh, a really big the starting, horse. Uh, well, the starting doses, it, well, it doesn't take much of a neurotoxin like that to to drop a large animal. Neurotoxins, um, you know, it doesn't take much because they have small targets to hit. So uh, it doesn't take a lot to overwhelm uh, even a even a big animal. They start with astoundingly small doses when they're inoculating horses for antivenom production and they they build them up over over time but the first doses are nowhere near what that snake can deliver in a full bite so i mean you're essentially doing the same course on a human though right you're starting slow and eventually yeah so the idea is that you start slow and it, it ramps up and um you're hoping to or the 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 goal is to build a a titer of antibodies that is uh, equivalent or uh, uh, analogous to what a horse is doing when, or a sheep is doing when you produce, um, you you raise antibodies bodies in them. Um, we are a lot smaller than horses, so you know, building up a 
enough antibodies to do that is uh, it, it's a non-trivial task. But um, the reality is that this is how this is how immunology works. It's how our biology works. So does it work? Does it provide protection? Uh, I think the real answer is that the data that's out there is too little in quantity and not and insufficient in quality to definitively answer that. But there, I, I would be, I, I would be generous enough to say, yeah, there's at least for some classes of toxins, there's there seems to be enough um, you know, anecdotal cases where it provides some some pretty serious protection. Now, if you have venom that's really really cytotoxic stuff that does serious tissue destruction, and in my neighborhood we have these big lancehead vipers, and what they're famous for is just just melting flesh. They're, they do tissue damage unlike almost any other snakes in the world. It is hard to imagine a titer of antibodies that would be high enough to mitigate, uh, you know, to, to mitigate something like that. But, you know, I, the real answer, again, to come back to it, there's just not enough, uh, there's not a large quantity of good quality data to address it. Very well. For for people um, out there who don't know, like Bill Haas lived to a hundred, and he was yeah. apparently into his upper nineties doing like yard work, digging holes. Yeah, and but stuff you cannot that. contribute that. Well, no, I'm just saying, no, you can't, and no. that's an important. Yeah, what Melissa said is important. Um, the things that we know that cause people to live longer, um, you know, good genetics. Let's start there. Good genetics, uh, healthy lifestyle, staying active. Um, you know, uh, everything down to a community and family support, all of those things are, are known to cause people to live longer. Mm. Um, the idea that has been inferred, and I think too, I, I think too much has been read into the, the fact that Bill Haas, um, you know, lived to be a hundred and hundred and a half and, and was, uh, inoculating himself. I think there's a, there's a temptation to attribute his longevity to the venom, and you can you can stay, say absolutely that no, there is not enough evidence to 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 make that conclusion. That's that is a real real stretch, and I would no, no way I would put my name on that. We just need more crazy bastards to try to get to a hundred years. <laughs> we just need a big uh, well, you know what? Most there's there's plenty of people that live to be a hundred years, and none of them self immunize. So. <laughs> right, right. Um, just kidding, guys. Uh, Don't start self-envenomating yeah. yourselves. Yeah, I would not. Not something I would encourage people to do. There's, I mean, there are there are some real risks associated with it. There are uh, not just theoretical risks. There's cases where it's actually happened where people have done the math wrong and given themselves more than they expected. There's cases where people have, um, you know, injuries. They have abscesses. They have infections. They have, um, you know, they have things go wrong and. You know, it it hurts. Um, self self immunizing is it is a it is an ordeal to put yourself through. Um, so, in any medical thing uh, that you're going to do like that, that you're always weighing, you know, what is the risk and the benefit, and what is the cost mm -hmm. against the benefit. And I haven't yet uh, heard a convincing case that either the benefit outweighs the risk or well, the, the cost is probably negligible in this case, but just if we only look at risk and benefit, I just don't see uh, the benefit uh, 
you know, I, I have a hard time imagining any case where it is a better approach to envenomation than rapid response and antivenom. I can't, you know, I can't think of a case where it's, it's the preferred solution. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> he just loves yeah. Bill Haas. No, I like yeah. talking about it because everyone is curious about it. And it's probably beating a dead horse for people in Venomous, but we've never yeah. talked about it before. Well, I'm, so. I'm sure I will, I, will hear, I will hear plenty about it. <laughs> so let's think oh. of some – one thing that I didn't – a misconception, I guess, from before I watched the Venom interviews was that you know we have your neurotoxic snakes, which are mostly your cobras, your lapids, that stuff, and hemotoxic snakes or your rattlesnakes. But it turns out that most species are kind of – a mixture of, of all, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it, it's more complicated than that. And there are certainly examples of snakes that are really purely hematoxic or, or, or almost completely hematoxic. So boomslangs are a good example of that. Um, venomous colubrids from Africa. That's really what that venom does is it causes, causes bleeding. Um, in Africa, a lot of populations of south-scale vipers are kind of the same way. They don't, they're not neurotoxic. They don't do... A great deal of tissue damage in some geographic regions they do, but in some, in some the bite site itself is unremarkable aside from a little bit of swelling, but but their bleeding is so that they cause is so severe that you'll bleed to death and they kill more people than any other genus of snakes. Um, so you have those ones that are, you know, that really do kind of fit into one uh, one category, um, and then you have things that are very purely neurotoxic. So, um, you know, black mambas are a good example of that. That is a neurotoxic snake that doesn't do, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of coagulation problems with it. You don't have a tissue injury. In fact, the, the local bite site of a mamba sometimes can be hard to see. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it, it can be a really surprisingly benign looking injury considering how quickly it can be it can be lethal. So you do have some examples, but in the vast majority of cases, and so rattlesnakes and cobras are good examples. So there's neurotoxicity is widely known in a lot of rattlesnakes. There's, you know, we, everybody looks first at Mojave rattlesnakes as the typical example of a neurotoxic rattlesnake. Uh, but tiger rattlesnakes have Mojave toxin. Southern Pacific rattlesnakes have Mojave toxin. You know, there's populations of eastern diamondbacks and timber rattlesnakes that are, are arguably more potently neurotoxic than they are either hemo or cytotoxic. Um, so the, the answer is, and I think that the chapter you're referring to is referred to as it's complicated. And <laughs> I called it that because it's complicated. Um, you know, it, cobras are another good example. There's cobras that do, cobras are thought of as, you know, these neurotoxic snakes, but cobras do horrific tissue damage. Um, even even the nausea that are not spitters, you know, nausea, nausea, nausea kuthia, can do, they can cause necrosis. They can cause, you know, horrible, horrible tissue damage. And the cobras that are spitters, um, neurotoxicity is often not uh, not the principal uh, feature of their of their venom. Um, they do primarily tissue damage and, and, and cause uh, bleeding problems to the point that... Um, you know, the, the real go-to is Mozambique spitters in, in South Africa where they get into people's homes and they, it's one of the few snakes that will actually nibble around and do exploratory bites. So people don't even have to roll over on them. They'll 
crawl in and you know there's a warm body and let's take a nip at that and see what that's like and well, that's awesome. and oh it's 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 a, it's a real problem and those injuries look like you know i've described it as looking like a kitchen fire it's like it looks like you've been burned it looks like a burn injury it's horrible um so the real answer is that that venoms are super complicated and that's what makes them super interesting and you find uh even within a category so even within hemotoxic venoms that cause uh, coagulopathy they're not all the same things causing the coagulopathy there's different types of coagulopathy there's different types of neurotoxicity um yeah almost I to the point I that realized that um you know through watching the venom interviews that even juvenile snakes and compared to the adults will have a different makeup of their venom in the same animal you know from adult from juvenile yes. to adult to adult yeah and in fact that's typical of that's more the rule than the exception in rattlesnakes um in my neighborhood we only have one rattlesnake in in costa rica at least at the moment they're all considered crotalus simus um but their venom is so different that what I've been told by the people who produce the antivenom there is if you're bitten by one that's less than 16 months old, don't even bother with the antivenom because the venom changes so substantially that it's not worth getting. Now, I don't, I don't know that I would follow that. I think since I don't know the age of the snake, can't tell by looking at it, um, uh, I would probably go ahead and, and get antivenom. But, you know, the statement still stands. It's the idea that venom can change so completely from the time the snake is born in that last, you know, six to 12 months before they approach sexual maturity. Uh, it's a different, you know, it becomes a different venom, sometimes remarkably different. Well, I'm sure you've seen, um, if you've ever seen bite victims or something, how closely can you take their word for something, whether it's a big snake, a small snake, what species it is, you know, what do you do oh, to wow. identify it? Um, so there's a, there's a few things you can do. Um, to answer your first question, do you take their word for it? Um, I tend not to take people's word for anything. I'd rather look at, you know, what evidence they have. If somebody has a picture of a snake, that is obviously very helpful. Um, this actually came up at the conference, uh, at, uh, at Venom Week that was just concluded down at Texas A&M in Kingsville, um, where a couple of us did presentations on venomous snake bite in Africa and, um, another, Doc from Brazil did a presentation that was very similar about snake bite in in Brazil, and that question came up: How do you identify snakes? You know, somebody's bitten out in the forest. How do you come up with a, an identification? And there are really two answers to that. One is much of the time you will not have uh, an ironclad, conclusive identification of what bit somebody. Uh, however, the second answer is that if you have a, a doctor who is experienced in snake bite or specializes in snake bite, and they know uh, how to correlate uh, the symptoms that they're seeing or the syndromes that they're seeing with differences in in different snakes, at least down to the genus level. And you look at the geography of where the bite happened and the habitat where it happened. And if you happen to have a description from the person, if you put all of those together and they all are kind <laughs> of in agreement. Like you have to be really lucky to have that. Um, well, you know, you'd be surprised. In Africa, we, we've, uh, we're we fortunate with some of the doctors that were working there that they happen to be snake. They, they are snake bite specialists and they know the snakes and their geography and their habitat very well as well. Um, so when we come into 
uh, a hospital and somebody has a certain set of symptoms, we are so we they are able to say with some confidence that this is probably Echisocelatus, a, a sawscale viper, or this is you know this is definitely a mamba bite, and because of the habitat that it happened in or the area that it happened in, it was probably a green mamba bite, and so both of those are things that actually happened over the course of the work on the, the current project. Um, but when you're in clinic where they, you, you have a doctor that has no training in, in snake bite, uh, who doesn't know anything about the animals. Um, and all you have to go on is a person's word who may or may not have seen the snake who may or may not be very reliable in what they report, you know, the description they report. And even if they report it accurately, or even if they get a picture of it, the chance of a, of a doc being able to identify something that they're not familiar with, I wouldn't have a lot of confidence in that either. So it can range from reasonably good confidence all the way down to almost no confidence. Now that we're like accidentally getting into it, what exactly are you doing in Africa as far as your new project? Uh, the, so the, the latest project is a series of training videos to help doctors and nurses in sub-Saharan Africa manage snake envenomation. And the series will include everything from kind of overviews of the topic that talk about epidemiology and public health and public policy around it to, um, to modules that deal with the medically important snakes on the continent and how antivenom is made. And then a set of clinical modules that deal with, you know, pre-hospital care, first aid type things to what you do in the clinic. Uh, how you administer antivenom, what to look for, um, how to assess good quality antivenom, um, to post, uh, you know, post hospital care, post clinic care, and wound care, and um, you know, things like that. So the idea is to cover the whole, the whole scenario. And um, there's a very interesting statistic that we have learned in the process. So the the baseline fatality rate for snake bites that present to clinics in Africa. Uh, it, it varies a little bit, but it ranges from the low, low to high 20% range. So of the people who are bitten, if they make it to a clinic, um, with and the clinic has no special training, there's no antivenom, they're not equipped to deal with snake bite, the baseline fatality rate is astoundingly high. It's somewhere between a third and a quarter of those people um, don't survive, which is a, just a shocking number. Um, by way of comparison in the U.S., about one out of every 15 to 1,800 bites is fatal. So is that a in terms to, of, you know, the species that are over there as well, or is it just the resources? Or just lack of well, knowledge? It, well, it's, it's, it's a complicated problem. It, it involves, um, you know, it, it involves the training of uh, the medical staff for sure. It involves the species for sure. But... You know, look at uh, look at Australia. Australia has some of the most dangerous snakes in the world, but snake bite is very close to being a solved problem in Australia. They have two or three deaths a year, uh, two or three deaths a year with some of the most dangerous snakes on the planet. Um, and if you look around the world, where snake bite morbidity or snake bites uh, correlate, it's they happen in the tropics, uh, in rural areas, so agricultural areas, or you know, areas outside cities, but dying from a snake bite correlates very, very closely with poverty. It is a disease of, of poor people, which is why we see the hugely disproportionate impact in 
sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, like, you know, places like India. Um, the problem in Africa is, is almost, it, it's, it's essentially equivalent to what happens in India. It's the same, same, roughly the same population, roughly the same number of bites, um, roughly the same number of fatalities as far as, uh, as far as we have any confidence in the data. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a massive, massive problem. Is the culture there and, similar to others to where, you know, time may be an issue as far as you may go to a tribe healer or something like that? Oh yeah, absolutely. So in, in Africa, at least in the areas that we, that we've been so far, uh, what we have understood is that almost a hundred percent of the people, uh, will go to a traditional healer first. And it's, it's easy to write that off as, as ignorance or backwardsness, but that is a, I really think that's an unfair way to characterize what's happening there. You know, people get bitten by snakes and most of these are going to be non-venomous bites or if they're venomous, they're going to be sublethal anyway. So they go to a traditional healer and it appears to work. They go to the healer and they survive. And so that looks pretty good. And the ones who get really bad, they may end up going to a clinic and a quarter of them die. So, they're acting on the best information that they have in front of them. It, what appears to be something that indicates that, well, you can, you can go to either one and your odds might be comparable, whether you go to a, a proper clinic or to a traditional healer. Um, they're acting on you know, what they think is the best available information. And the information they have might not be great. And their interpretation of that information not be great, might not be great. And certainly there is some superstition involved um but but that's not all that's happening to to write it off as you know as is just sure ignorance or stupidity i I have a short fuse for that you were in their shoes and you saw that everyone no you know yeah and that's the that's kind of the point that i try to emphasize that if you're in their shoes it does make a lot of sense what they do because it appears to be uh it appears to be effective Mm -hmm. um now going to any place where traditional medicine is traditional, um, you know, to, to straight up try to cut the healers out of the, the cycle just doesn't work. It's just, it's a recipe for disaster because it's, it is, it is deeply ingrained and the healers are central to their communities. Um, and so my friends at AVRI uh, worked on this project in, in Sri Lanka, where they uh, developed an antivenom there in cooperation with uh, Clodomir Picado in Costa Rica to produce an antivenom for the, the native snakes there in Sri Lanka. And they engaged the, the local healers um, to get them, you know, to make them allies and to help them recognize, you know, here is something you might look for that might indicate a serious bleeding problem that might not be, uh, might not be initially obvious, or here's something that would indicate neurotoxicity that's going to get bad really fast. So um, do what you're going to do, but get, you know, encourage these people to get to a clinic as, as fast as possible. And from what, at least from what we can infer from what's happened in Sri Lanka, it seems like that is a, it's a reasonable approach. Okay. I have a weird question. Totally not important, but for the modules you're doing for um, the sub-Saharan Africa, what language are you doing them? Oh, (laughs) actually that is a, it's a good question. And I'm glad you asked that. (laughs) I'm curious. Um, because it, it's important. So we've we've started the project um, 
and the time we've spent there has all been in West Africa. Um, so we've spent time in, in Ghana, Togo, Benin, and most recently in Guinea. And uh, aside from Ghana, which uh, English is the language of Ghana, almost all the, West, the, the rest of West Africa is French. And in fact, quite a lot of Africa is French. There's other areas that are Portuguese. There are a few that are English. Um, so we are, the, the modules are produced in English, French, and Spanish. And uh, there's some chance that they may go into Portuguese as well. Uh, we did get a Portuguese translation of one of the modules. Uh, it hasn't been rolled out yet, but um, Portuguese becomes important in countries down in the, the southeast part of the continent. Um, and so it, it'll at least be those three and you know, possibly more over time. Arabic is another one that becomes important when you get to North Africa uh, and the Middle East. So um, w we want to have it in as many languages as we can reasonably do and have it be useful. Now, in those areas, um, does that certain um, any venom that they would have on hand, does it need to be refrigerated? And do they have, you know, refrigeration and stuff like that? available um that's a that's a good question um the answer is uh the antivenom well let me put it this way for antivenom to be appropriate for africa it has to be heat stable without refrigeration which means it has to be freeze-dried um the antivenom that we were working with when we were there was freeze-dried it worked remarkably well but you have you have not just the storage conditions um in fact i wouldn't be super concerned about the storage conditions for a freeze-dried antivenom, um, because you know maybe eighty or ninety degrees, uh, but it's not going to sit on the shelf for very long because it's going to get used. Um, there's lots of snake bites, and so that antivenom is not going to sit there for for years. It might be, you know, days or weeks in a busy clinic. Um, but the 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 temperature during transport, if it's sitting in the back of a truck at one hundred and forty degrees, that's a problem, mm -hmm. and that is something that that has to be solved. Um, I don't know if I if that was a roundabout way. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, you did. And I was also another question stemming off of that. Um, we know the high cost of any venom oh, here. You took my question. So, so you know, mm. our, exactly how do they thinking. get these this right. any venom that's thousands of dollars per vial? You know, how is that? Yeah, so well, obviously, it's not thousands of dollars per vial. That's the that's the idea. The, the important factor. It is the cost uh, on the ground there in Africa, in the areas that we were ranged from about, um, I guess the low end was 28 or $29 per vial up to about 33 or $35 wow. per vial. Um, so it's much, much less expensive. Um, a, a huge percentage of the cost of antivenom goes to regulatory fees and markups and, and you know, just the, the, expectations of return on investment producing antivenom for the developed world that is very different from when you're producing it for places like africa or india where you know that wouldn't you know that would just never that would never fly you might have people that make a thousand dollars in a year uh, or half that much mm -hmm. in a year and so you know antivenom that's twenty five hundred dollars a vial or five thousand dollars a vial is just a non-starter but in once you get down to the you know, the $30 range or $35 range, then some other uh, possibilities come into play. So, for example, countries like Burkina Faso, uh, uh, Burkina Faso, which is just north of where we were in West Africa, has instituted, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's a 95% government subsidy 
for antivenom. So if you go in and get, say, four vials of antivenom and the, let's, let's say the cost is $100, what the patient ends up paying of that is $5 for, you know, for four vials of antivenom. Um, and most viper bites would be treated with, you know, somewhere in that range, uh, that range of vials. Big vipers would obviously be, be more. But for them to pay, you know, five or ten or twenty dollars for a total course of treatment, that's very, very different from paying thirty or forty dollars per vial. And so, a big part of solving the problem is that's where the public health and public policy comes in. Is government subsidies are, are necessary. If you're going to solve that problem for populations that can't afford, you know, can't afford the drug. Mm -hmm. And how are you sourcing? Do you know where the antivenom comes uh, from as far as who's milking it? Does it come from the U.S. and gets exported and it's still that cheap or is it made in Africa? Uh, no, it's actually it's a European. The, the one that we're working with, the, the main uh, antivenom partner we're working with on the project is a European producer, um, a, a company called Inasan. Um, and their manufacturing is split between Mexico and and uh, and Spain, and they make some very very high quality, exceptionally good, uh, good safe, heat stable antivenom that's appropriate for the country. Um, but it needs to be made in in to cover the continent. You get you know you have 1.1 billion people there, and you have a million snake bites a year. So the amount of antivenom you have to produce. Uh, is is just staggering, and then you have to get it where it needs to go. It's got to get, uh, it's got to get to the clinics where people can use it. So that is a huge logistical challenge. Um, as far as where the snakes are milked, that venom is produced in. Uh, there are venom producers in both Mexico that produce everything that's that's needed, and there's producers in in Europe, notably France, uh, where there's you know, there's plenty of venom to go around. Producing venom is not a, it's not, it's probably the easiest part of the entire, um, the entire antivenom production process. Getting the venom is a solved problem. How often do you get people asking if they can buy venomous snakes and milk them to make money? Oh, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that happens all the time. Um, and you know, uh, Especially a couple of years ago, there was a, what was it, a year, two years ago, and two years ago, I guess, when the, I won't even mention the name, but it's a, a dreaded <laughs> series uh, came out um, purporting to, um, to, to show, you know, the, the roads paved with gold, liquid yeah. gold um, for milking snakes. The reality is that um, if you want to make a million dollars milking sna uh, snakes, you better start with two million. Um, well, plus because the it, whole show it, was was fake. It was fictitious. Oh yeah, the, we know all that. It was people, complete. <laughs> yeah, it was complete. It was it was absolute fiction. It didn't it didn't have anything to do with the real world of venom production. So, I mean, to give you an idea, in the U.S., there's only a handful of producers. There's maybe a, a half a dozen. Even if you count small boutique shops, there's about half a dozen venom producers in the U.S. And there's not a market for any more. Right. Um, there's people who I think maybe uh, suspect that there's um, even if they know that there's not a lot of money in it, they suspect that maybe there's some prestige or some some fame or some street cred attached to producing venom. Well, you can produce all the venom you want, but you got to get you know if it's a business, you got to get somebody to buy it. And 
that's that is a tiny even globally that's a tiny tiny market so there is there's more than enough venom produced in the world to satisfy the demand um but to answer your question yeah people ask that a lot and um i try not to roll my eyes too hard i answer the question uh accurately and politely but um for anybody who might be listening that's imagining doing that uh it is you know unless you're doing it purely for the love of it um and even then it is a risky thing to do and and if you don't have somebody consuming that venom it's a risk for for no real reason i'll say it don't waste your damn time what were you gonna say no yeah don't waste your time that's a bl- nice blunt way to put it don't waste so your time what so if it's not more supply what would it take to bring the cost down in the states in well in the u.s um in the U.S., that's a very hard question to answer because all of the machinery, um, you know, by machinery, I mean the regulatory agencies and hospitals billing practices and their relationships with insurance companies and all of those different things that factor into what antivenom uh, is charged out or billed out to the patient as changing those things is 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 really difficult. And I don't see any reason to think that um, you know, we have a new uh, new pit viper antivenom that will be available in the U.S. beginning in October of this year. Uh, it is produced in Mexico. It'll be licensed under BTG, who is the producer of our current antivenom, which is Crofab. Um, in Mexico, that is a fairly inexpensive uh, antivenom. I think it's maybe a hundred or two hundred dollars per vial. I don't see any reason to believe that it will be much cheaper than Crofab when it gets here yeah. to the U.S. I don't think that's going to change very much. Um, and, you know, the U.S., for a country of 320 million people, we have six or 8,000 snake bites. Um, it's, it is a relatively small problem to deal with. So attacking the pricing on that, unless you are a self-pay patient, um, it's never going to happen. You know, it, it, yeah, I'm just, I'm not real optimistic. I'm not optimistic that that's, that that's ever going to change. Unless um, a lot of but people are getting bit, the develop- shouldn't happen. You don't well, want that to happen, but. Oh, yeah, well, our, our, our bites, our bites have, have held pretty steady. They don't, they don't seem to spike very much. Um, but I think to get to, back to the rest of that question, what can be done to bring the cost down in the developing world? Um, a couple of things. One is you have to produce it in huge volumes. You get economy of scale when you're producing a million vials of something versus a thousand vials of something. It can be a just a massive difference in in what it, what that product will end up costing. Um, but then government subsidies, like I mentioned, um, which is a, a huge variable in how affordable the product ends up being, um, and you know reasonable distribution systems and and, and things like that. Uh, so those are those are uh, we know enough. Uh, we have enough case studies um, in countries like Mexico and Burkina Faso to know that it, it is a solvable problem. It is not an easy problem to solve, but the model of uh, you know government subsidies plus good distribution plus training, um, you know plus uh, large production runs that works. It works in it in it gets the antivenom where it needs to go and it, and it does it at a cost that that can help people. I guess so it's it's doable. 
So a question here would be how many doctors in range of where venomous snakes are are actually trained to deal with snake bites and administer things like crofab and how readily available is it in the first place? Do you mean in the U.S. or yes, in in, the, in, the US. in Africa? In the U.S., um, there's a couple of ways to look at that problem. So one of the ways you can look at it is that, um, you know, snake bite, we could say that, well, we're maybe we're not very good at um, at treating it because there's a lot of uh, suboptimal snake bite care that happens. And it is largely attributable to the fact that, look, this isn't something that most doctors deal with day in and day out. In fact, most of them won't deal with it more than a couple of times in, in their career. So unless you're in snake bite country and you're a snake bite specialist and you get a lot of patients, um, you know, to expect a doctor to be well rehearsed at something that they never see, mm -hmm. that's not the real world. That's not a reasonable thing to expect. And a remarkable thing is that even if the treatment in the U.S. is imperfect, our fatalities are one out of 1,500 or one out of 1,800 venomous bites. Um, that is that is a pretty stellar success rate, considering that it, you know, that the training could be better and so on and so forth. Um, so we do. Uh, I mean, and we have you know we have five deaths a year, plus or minus in the U.S. It's you know, terrible if you're one of those people or their friends or family. But in you know, considering the size of our population and the number of bites we have, it's nothing. It is a fairly well. It's a fairly well managed problem. Yeah. Could it be better? Sure, it could be better. Um, but it is, a, you know, especially if you compare it to places like South Asia, or Africa, or even in Latin America where I live, um, it's 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 head and shoulders above most places in the world. So in the U.S. Um, Canada doesn't have much of a snake bite problem. They have some rattlesnakes, uh, but you you know you look at you look at the U.S., uh, Western Europe, and Australia. Snake bite is is essentially a solved problem in those areas. Um, they do a pretty good job with you know with what they have. Do we have any numbers on how many of those deaths are from you know allergies related to whether it's the antivenom or the bite? Well, allergy related to antivenom, um, crofab in particular. Uh, it, those are almost non-existent. Crofab is engineered to be a uh, about as non-allergenic as a foreign protein in your body can be. Um, so when there are al allergic reactions to crofab in particular, they tend to be pretty mild, mm -hmm. uh, if they happen at all. They tend you know, they tend not to happen at all, and if they do, they can be managed um, usually without a lot of drama. So deaths due to um, to anaphylaxis from crofab. I don't know of any. I do know that there were some dangerous anaphylactic reactions to the old YF polyvalent, which was a very different, uh, a very different type of antivenom, and they did have an occasional death from uh, from anaphylaxis. But that's not the case with uh, any of the modern antivenoms, whether it's a a, fr a fraction uh, a fractionated. Um, immunoglobulin molecule from either the U.S. or Mexico; those are not those are not high risks anymore. I think they're believed to be a much higher risk than they are. Um, now that said, a lot of the world still produces whole IgG antivenom. Um, you know, it, it, where I am in Costa Rica, we uh, that's what's made in the country, um, and it does have 
a risk of uh, of allergy. It does have a risk of serum sickness, and people do get people do get nice and sick uh, from it. Uh, it's it's kind of the 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 price you pay, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a it's a good medication and it works. It's potent and it saves people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, back to your original question, as far as people dying from antivenom, that is in the U.S. I would say that that is something that essentially never it just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, and I guess now to shift gears, I mean, we're kind of in the U.S., but what drove you where you were already living in Costa Rica to come over to the U.S. and talk about, you know, make a documentary on people in the venomous profession in the U.S. in particular? Uh, well, when I made the film, or, or I should say when I filmed the film and I did the the principal photography for it, uh, I was living in the U.S. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. Um so I finished editing after we moved to, to Costa Rica, but the the story that I wanted to tell was I I, th- I thought that you know that venomous snakes and the people who work with them show up a lot in nature and science programming. Um, you know they show up on Animal Planet and Discovery shows, and they show up a lot. And so there must be something interesting about it. But at the same time, if it's interesting, why do they feel the need to sensationalize it and fictionalize it? so badly. And I became kind of fixated on this, this question. I go, well, gosh, are we, are we not interesting if they, you know, if it's not sexed up like that, is it not, you know, is it not a story worth telling? And so my kind of hypothesis for, for the project was that, look, you can get rid of, you know, the lights and the hyperactive host and, um, you know, the overly dramatic narration and music, and you can get rid of all the noise and nonsense and this work is interesting all by itself. It's the the animals and the people who do it are interesting. So my that was my premise. And so the film was an attempt to test whether that premise was true or not. And it turns out, well, you've seen the film. It was, uh, I think, that these are interesting people doing interesting work. And it was, um, and I think it's it's still fun for me to watch. I can actually watch the film as a, a fan of the subject and still thoroughly enjoy the discussion that's that's happening from people whose work I really respect a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, these are definitely there's no there's no one probably more fascinating than Jim Harrison from Kentucky Rescue. <laughs> I mean, just his yeah. story alone will um, blow your mind. Jim is Jim is a great guy, and I got to spend uh, a number of days. Kristen was was also down at the Venom Week down in in Kingsville, and so we got to catch up. Um, but people who do people who do unusual jobs tend to be pretty interesting people. Um, and there's other, you know, the other people who run uh, Venom Labs, Carl Barden's lab down in in Deland in in Florida, uh, George Van Horn's lab that's I think is about fifty years old now. That lab's been there for a very long is that time. The coral All snake of, lab. Well, um, both George and Carl have coral snakes on the line. Okay that are used for um, the, I think most of that has gone to antivenom production for the new batch of coral snake antivenom that was just uh, released not too long ago. Um, but you know, they're, they're producing coral snake venom as quickly as they can and it's all getting bought. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but it, to be able to do things like keep a colony of, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 coral snakes alive for a long-term basis and milk their venom and keep them fed and keep them healthy um, that's pretty remarkable. Well, if, uh, if, and there's, if anyone's downplaying that from what I 
have seen, you have to pinky pump every single one of your coral snakes so they don't eat readily on like rodents or something like that. They pinky. No, well, they. Yeah, well, rodents for sure. Um, most of the people, in fact, I believe that all of the people that I know of that are working with coral snakes mm-hmm. um, in the U.S. F- tube feed them mm-hmm. with a diet that's. Um, uh, it, it it varies a little bit from shop to shop, but it's a protein diet uh, with some nutritional supplements. And you'll see in, in the Venom interviews, you'll see some of the tube feeding where there's a, after they do the extraction, they'll run a, a catheter down to the snake's stomach, pump a certain number of cc's of food, and pull it back out. And that's how that snake gets fed. How do so you all do that for like a hundred? Um, one at a time. <laughs> it is. Oh my god. That um. So you know, coral snakes don't produce a lot of venom. You you know, I, I think an average yield is nine or ten milligrams of venom from them. So that's why coral snake venom costs four thousand dollars a gram. It's um because it is a staggering amount of work to do it and to keep those snakes alive. It's uh they're hard. I mean, they're really. It's not like a a western diamondback that's going to spit out you know, a thousand microliters of venom at a time there, you know, it's, it's a, you know, one, one drip of liquid, think of it this way, a drip of liquid, you think of a drip of water coming from a faucet or something, each of those drips is say around 50, 60 milligrams. Mm -hmm. And you're getting a fifth of that, a fifth of a drop of yield (laughs) from a typical coral snake at a time. Wow. Um, And so it's, it is grueling and thankless work. But the people who do it, it, but it's interesting work, and the people who do it tend to be pretty interesting people. Mm -hmm. So did you have any background in filming or videography or, you know, what kind of sparked this? Well, I I wanted to tell the story. Um, As far as a camera, I was a fairly, um, uh, fairly good photographer. So I understand how cameras work, how light works, how color works. Um, understand what it takes to get an image into a camera. What I did not have experience doing was telling a story in video. And in fact, one of the things I was most nervous about is I'm, I'm going to drive around the country and spend a pile of money and shoot 60 hours of material and not know whether there's a story in there. Um, and if there was a story, I had to figure out how to get the story and put it together in the, uh, into something that kind of made sense. And I was lucky enough by shooting so much material, I, I overcompensated for that lack of confidence by shooting a tremendous amount of material. And uh, only about 3% or 5% of what I shot ended up in the finished film. So, um, but what was there was enough to craft the story that you see, which is kind of this collective biography of people who start with this childhood fascination that a bunch of us had. And then it sticks with them into adulthood and they manage to find a career mm-hmm. where that works. And then, so it, the film largely focuses on those careers and uh, the work that they do and how they got to be doing it. And then it kind of wraps up with a retrospective of, you know, looking back on their careers and what their recommends or recommendations are for the next generation. If you don't mind, how would you allow yourself the freedom financially and time-wise to do all this filming and editing and stuff like that? Uh, well, so I've, I've worked in technology um, as a software engineer and tech, uh, all around tech guy for, uh, uh, for a good number of years. And in Los Angeles, uh, that pays reasonably well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and so after doing it for a, a number of years, and my wife and I always lived pretty lean, uh, I had enough sitting in the bank to to kind of fund the, at least I to, enough to fund the time I thought it would take to do the film. I thought it would take 12 to 18 months, and it took just short of five years. Um, so from that standpoint, it ended up costing a lot more than I expected, but it was it was funded out of my own pocket. It wasn't, there was no investors or outside funding. Um, and in fact, I don't know if you could get somebody to fund a project like that. It's it's kind of weird. It's very, very niche. Only we understand this kind of thing. I mean, I, the whole time yeah. we're saying that, I'm like, if he came to me and said, uh, can I just go do this thing for many years, that probably won't make money for a while. Like, I don't know how yeah. on board I would be. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it would be a it would be a tough sell, um, especially for kind of a passion project that was made by us for us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something that's ever going to see the light of day on, on, you know, Nat Geo or, or animal planet. In fact, it exists for the purpose of skewering animal planet. Right. Um, so they're not going to broadcast it. The audience, it really is. Um, I guess I shouldn't be quite that pessimistic. It was, it was aimed at the herp community and it was a, uh, a project that I did for the herp community. Um, but one thing that's been really surprising and satisfying is that people who have a general interest in nature and science have been some of the most amazing audiences that I've I've met and presented to and people that were not really hurt people or people who dealt with marine biology or wildlife conservation or had only kind of a passing interest in snakes or reptiles. They dug it. And that was a pleasant surprise that that it appealed to a wider audience than I initially imagined. Yeah, that's something that, like, I would care more about getting the stamp of approval from snake people themselves than if I went to, if you're in, like, Sundance or something, you know? It's like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, And the the commitment that I made to everybody who appeared in the film is that uh, even though, you know, obviously this huge quantity of material has to be edited, um, I'll keep it so that it's, it's faithful to their... Uh, to what they've said. Um, and what I wanted more than anything else is I wanted their approval because what typically happens in uh, a lot of productions like this, you know, you sign a release and then what ends up being produced is not what you meant to say. Right. It's not what you meant to, it's not the message you meant to convey. And I made the commitment to them that, that, that it would stay faithful to their original, you know, the original meaning of their words and that that message wouldn't change. And so their approval was what was important to me, um, you know, even more than the audience. I, I think I went at it from the standpoint that if I, you know, if I, if I was faithful to that, the audience would, would come along for the ride. And I don't think your timing could have been any better. I mean, I know you filmed it, you know, five years prior to it being released, but by the time you released it, it's, you know, after Eaten Alive and after the Venom oh, yeah. and all that stuff. So, I mean, did that fuel you through the process? Yeah. I mean, because there was all, you know, there was a constant supply of trash TV that kept me kind of energized and motivated and just angry enough to keep at it. Um, um, yeah. So, you know, shows like that, that, uh, you know, every time you thought it had gotten as bad as it could get, you know, something like eating alive comes up and it's like, Oh God, there's no, yeah, okay. We've hit, we've hit bottom. It can only get better from there. And then venom hunters comes up and, 
so I've kind of given up predicting that things have gotten as bad as they can get because every time I've predicted that I've been wrong, they just, they keep getting worse. But yeah, I think you're right. The timing was, the timing was fortuitous. I couldn't have, I couldn't have engineered that better if I tried. And it's like, I'm disappointed because I read the book, um, Mother of God by Paul Rosalie, which is, um, uh, it's, it's the guy for me in Alive, and it's basically about being in yeah. the Amazon and living in the Amazon and anacondas, and it's a really great book by a really great naturalist who totally fucked up his one chance at the whole TV thing. So yeah, well, from what I that. understood, I haven't I haven't read the book, but I I do know some of the other people who uh, were either directly or tangentially associated with that particular product uh, project, and I know that. Um, what was pitched to, I think what was pitched to Paul and what was pitched to other people was very, very different from what ended up being the final product. Uh, and that's not uncommon. I mean, that happens all the time where they come along and say, you know, we're going to, we're going to try to create something like this and it's going to be educational. And they tell you what you want to hear. And then once they've got the footage and you've signed a release, they can do literally anything they want with it. Mm -hmm. um, and you can do some pretty evil things in editing and you can, you can twist people's words and you can twist situations and you can make things out to be, you know, not just misleading, but completely fictional. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't know how anything, those contracts work, but I mean, you want to, I guess, have final say on what goes out there. You don't want to, I mean, I know just from making YouTube videos that I do stupid shit and then I'll make like a chase scene out of it, but I never intended it to, you know, I just have fun editing it. And like you just spilled beer all over yourself, but I mean, you can make so much in editing. You can make drama just from music and cutting that wouldn't that just didn't exist before. Oh yeah, yeah, and that happens. That's more the rule than the exception, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are you know productions like that, like Eaten Alive and like Venom Hunters that didn't start out to be as bad as they became. Um. And it's, you know, it's, it's a real conundrum for the people who, um, who want to get, uh, you know, want to help make things better and want to, um, want to have a more constructive message out there. You can either completely stand on the sides, uh, the sidelines and know that they're going to wreck it, or you can try to participate and weigh in and cross your fingers and hopefully, you know, maybe it's, it'll, it makes it a little bit better. But then you run the risk of being misrepresented or misquoted or quoted out of context. Mm -hmm. um, so it is a real, it's a real rock and a hard place for, um, for the serious people in the community about whether to participate in these or not, because you're kind of, kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Absolutely. Now, there's so many people who are interested in this kind of thing and want to do the right thing. So how did you get past that whole you know, you're not exactly a documentary filmmaker. How do you have the balls to go for it and make a great documentary? Oh, wow. Um, the, well, I had, a, I, I had a clear idea in mind of uh, the story that I wanted to tell or not, not exactly the, the narrative that came out, but I had an idea of what I wanted to communicate. Um, that I thought that there was a good story in the real people doing real work with real animals. I thought that that was a, I, you know, I felt strongly enough and I was confident enough in that premise that it was worth, it was worth doing. Um, and when I talked to pe uh, the people who were involved 
in the project, um, that that goal resonated with them. Um, but uh, you know, they're they're also some of them were also a little bit you know um, a little bit skeptical because they've been told similar things before and they didn't always turn out the way people promised. Um, but it, you know, it took a little time to build. Yeah, I guess to build the confidence that I was doing what I said I was doing, um, and that the 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 finished product was going to be what I committed to at at the beginning, mm-hmm. and you know because it was it was paid for it was paid for out of my money I uh, out of my own money I didn't know that you know whether it would ever make a profit I approached it very much from the standpoint of you know economics be damned I'm making the movie that I want to make um, I'm making the movie I want to see and if it if it breaks even, great. If it never breaks even, you know, then I've still made the movie I wanted to see and the experience will have been worth it. Um, but I guess part of it was, uh, you know, the, the, the balls to do it is part of it is not knowing what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, if I, I think I've said before that if I had known going into it that it would cost as much as it did or take as long as it took or be as hard as it was, I probably wouldn't have done it. I mean, no sane person would would dive into something like that, knowing it was going to be so difficult. Uh, it was it was a tough project. Now, knowing and the fact what that you it, have now, are you going to do another project? I mean, you have well, so much yeah. more footage. You said it was only like three percent or five percent. So yeah, there's there's a good there's a good bit in there. I mean, but but really, what's in the the in the film is the best of the best. It's it's the the stuff that is most worth seeing. I have plenty of, uh, you know, plenty of B-roll of animals and and other things that may find a use, some way and someday. Um, the current project, uh, once the training series in Africa, is is done, I would love to do something like the Venom interviews, mm-hmm. um, but I can see regional editions of it. So one, you know, one in Africa that might piggyback on what we're doing there. Um, certainly one in Latin America because Latin America has its own, um, unique characteristics. Um, and Asia has its own unique characteristic. You know, there's amazing things, uh, stories to be told in, in China and India and, um, Nepal and Vietnam and, and Thailand. And that could be a whole, uh, a whole other project. But one thing I guess I can definitely say is, I can't do those out of my own pocket. <laughs> uh, those would, you know, those would require some kind of, yeah, can't some kind just of funding. drive around to all those people. <laughs> no, I mean, it costs, it, it costs a lot of, it costs a lot of money to do it. And it costs a, a huge amount of money and time, you know, to take time away from uh, a normal nine to five job. And you're, you're grinding through cutting up video and you know, you're making progress, but you don't know how much longer it's going to take. And that was, that was torture. To be, you know, to be at the desk for twelve hours a day and be making progress and still never, until very close to the end, uh, not have a good sense of when it was going to be finished. That kind of uncertainty is very hard to work through. Did you expect the kind of embrace you got from the venomous community or just the reptile community in general? Um, I it, well, it's definitely been a pleasant surprise, and it is one of the things that has absolutely made the project worth it. Is that um, what I thought was a worthwhile project was also what so many other people thought was a worthwhile project. So that that's hugely satisfying. Um, you know, it, it helped that I started building a community around the project and keeping them updated a couple of years in advance. And I, uh, 
I didn't intend to do it that far in advance. It just ended up taking that long. But the fact that a large community had grown up in anticipation of the project, that kind of blew my mind. That was certainly not something I could have predicted. Um, but that is certainly one of the things that kept me energized is I had, you know, as a group of 7,000 people, then 8,000 people, then 9,000 people all banging on my door every day saying, is it almost done? Is it almost done? Is it almost done? And so, you know, you can't, you, you cannot have done all this work and have it so close and then give up. But, you know, people wanted to see it and, um, you know, they value it. It's important to them. And so I had to, had to finish it. I mean, that is a good problem to have. Um, okay. It really is. I have two questions. Um, is your wife as passionate about venomous snakes as you are? <laughs> She's passionate about me being safe. Um, <laughs> um, so no, my, my wife is not a, not a herper. She's, she is incredibly tolerant and she is, you know, we have an office full of pit vipers and coral snakes and who knows what else at any given time. So she's been, uh, she knows that I work safely with the animals. And, and so she, uh, as long as, uh, as long as I'm, you know, doing that responsibly, she's, she's supportive and she was amazingly supportive through, you know, the duration of the project more so than, um, you know, probably more so than most people would have been. Um, she was just a rock star through it. Um, and that said, she's, you know, she's fairly adept. She can identify most of the, the local snakes that we run across frequently. Uh, we ended up having a, a, a terciopelo in our house that she, she found and identified. Um, and that's not an animal that you want to, you know, a lancehead viper under the dryer is not something you want to discover inside your house by accident. No, but she, but, but she's been, she's a, she's a great sport and she's been a, you know, she's been a phenomenal support through the project. And now gaining all you have from our community as a whole, what can the private keepers, obviously we're not herpetologists or biologists or anything like that. What can the private keepers do to maintain integrity in our hobby? Um, I treat it responsibly, um, you know, have respect for the animals um, if you have, if, if you keep them just for the joy of keeping the animals, I don't look down on that. I think that's perfectly fine. You don't have to have a scientific mission or you don't have to be engaged in citizen science to be a legit keeper. There's people who, you know, who learn to breed stuff that we didn't know how to breed 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Lots and lots of that came from the private sector. Um, and even if people just keep animals because they enjoy them, I think that's a perfectly legitimate reason to keep them. Um, and if you're doing it responsibly and you're not, uh, you're not in it for your ego and you're not in it for, um, you know, you're not making things worse. Uh, it, you know, it, it just isn't that hard. It isn't that hard, but for the people who do have some inclination to, to do scientific type stuff, you know, collect, you know, reproductive biology is something that the private sector does a phenomenal job at. Um, occasionally you have private collectors who happen to have unusual venomous stuff that somebody wants a sample of. And so sometimes they'll provide, you know, venom samples or DNA samples or shed skin, um, things like that. So, you know, get, get to know, even if 
you don't feel like you're part of the scientific community or the professional community, get to know them. They're, you know, they're nice people. They're not, um, they're not, you know, they're not scary. They, they don't bite. Um, they tend to be pretty unforgiving to people who do st stupid things. That's but, always, you know, you never know whether do it's stupid things. upon to be a public herp. Like you never know if, cause I guess some people in the, um, like the scientific community don't exactly respect a lot of normal herpers and stuff like that. People just keep them in captivity. So I guess that's kind well, of the question. Yeah, I think that might be true of some in the zoo community, but you know, for the most part, even zoo keepers, um, and certainly a lot of the scientists who work with venom, not all of them, but a lot of them are herpers or they, you know, they are the kids who grew up catching garter snakes at seven years old. Um, that's how people start. Um, so they do have some, they, you know, they can relate to private keepers. They understand the allure of the animals. They understand the appeal. Um, they understand that they're fun and interesting and cool. Mm. And so I think you would find that uh, they're more relatable than I think people make them out to be. They're not, you know, they're not scary. They're, they're humans. And they're um, a lot of them are, are super fun, hilarious, uh, smart people. Yeah. I think it was just super interesting talking to Kathy Love a couple of weeks ago and how intertwined the, you know, private keeping community was to scientific back in the day, just because there was so little of them, you know, it was all kind of intertwined. Well, you know, that that's still the case. In fact, when I started this project, I was thinking, okay, well, I, I really need to separate out private keeping from the professional and scientific stuff, because um, not that I thought that private keeping was any less important, but I thought it was a big enough subject that it would deserve its own kind of kind of deserved its own project or its own treatment. But, you know, once I got into it, I realized that there's just no way to separate the private from the professional and scientific. They're all so deeply intertwined and they depend on each other. Mm -hmm. um, so I would encourage people to, you know, there's, there's groups on Facebook, like the Venom Interviews group, uh, where uh, people who are enthusiasts and private keepers interface day in and day out with people who are doing, you know, the, the cutting edge science on either venom or ecology or biology or, um, you know, there's, there's good husbandry information you can get from them. Uh, it's, they're just a fantastic resource. And at, at, at heart, most of them are herpers. Um, okay. I have two more questions. Um, the first one, I don't know how to phrase it quick correctly, but shut up. It's kind of about changing people's views. So he's not ever interested, but like I'm someone who, you know, obviously before meeting him, I knew nothing about snakes. Like they were just kind of a thing. I was never super scared of them, but you know, I have friends. And so I love changing someone's minds about snakes in general but obviously venomous is a whole different you know game it's a harder sell right so is it is it something you try to sell to people um i i do well so i so i do educational programs in my own community and i live in a fairly small community there around uh, the lake and i do educational programs and um, you know, I'm the guy that people call for identification or for removal, and right. I'm happy to. I'm always happy to spend time, you know, talking to people about the animals, and I'm always grateful when they call me instead of killing them. 
Um, but over the four years I've been there, it, it has been really satisfying to see the change in, yeah, not everybody for sure, but definitely a change in attitudes of a lot of people who came down and, you know, especially foreigners who moved down to a, a new country and they're dealing with new wildlife that they've never seen before. And some of these have, they've heard horror stories about. Um, but to be able to spend time up, uh, you know, up close with these animals, even even animals like you know, big the big landsat vipers and rattlesnakes. Um, for people to see that they are, you know, it, that they are a, there's something to be respected, but they're they're perfectly manageable. Um, and yeah. people oh, are interested. I can't do it. <laughs> I know it's, and we found a copperhead this weekend because she was filming us because we were doing a YouTube uh. video. And, um, you know, I was right Very there. Very close. But, I mean, Very this is like close. the puppy dog compared to these snakes. But, but I mean, but I the just, copperhead didn't ugh. move at all. Like, you know, I was behind the log it was under and it didn't move at all and you she were was like very nervous four inches head. from it and it was i'm four ha- inches from yes it. you were i'm ha- to, <laughs> to take the, the picture was. yes the camera was yeah. your phone your, your hands were around the phone so your fingers were four inches from it and i'm having a heart attack just yeah, from a baby four inches is pretty close that's She's pretty close to i'll show you the but, photo you can tell it's from yeah. like a foot away yeah. He was so close. Yeah. yeah, I you know everybody has has uh you know cameras on their phones and and some of the cameras are pretty amazingly good quality and unfortunately they're very wide angle lenses so mm-hmm. you do have to get up pretty close to stuff and I have seen people taking cell phone pictures of things that are closer than I would get. I like you know a nice 100 millimeter lens where you can get and I can zoom up to a you know a bushmaster's face from 10 feet away. That that's uh, you know, that's a nice way to to capture an image, um, but you know, when people say, well, you know, how many times you've been bit, been bitten? And I've I've never been bitten by a any front fang venomous snake, and I try to emphasize that I don't get bitten for the same reason they don't get bitten because I don't allow the animals close enough uh, to me to bite me, and I don't allow them the opportunity. That makes me um, feel better. Yeah, so I, it, there's no. You don't you don't get extra points for, um, you know, for 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 risk in in my book. I guess in some books, some books you get points for that, but I I don't see the point. I think your uh, telemeters, your DNA gets a little bit shorter every time, <laughs> meaning your life gets a little bit shorter. <laughs> what were you gonna say? Um, okay. Certainly can be. A- yeah, no, it's just I, that's always something that's very interesting to me. Like, how do you sell venomous to people? But I think. It, it's tough. So it, it depends on the situation. If, if you can get people interested in the animal or you can, um, you can help them understand that this animal plays uh, an important part in the ecology. Um, and I would say that even the foreigners who move down to my area are maybe more concerned than average for the state of the natural world. So there, there may be a, a good audience. Maybe they're predisposed to, to hearing it. Um, but it does depend on the animal. So if I'm talking to somebody about coral snakes, um, coral snakes present such a uh, such a small risk in terms of it, it takes some real talent to get bitten by a coral snake. So you, you're perfectly safe observing a coral snake from two feet away. They're they're not a um, they're not that scary an animal. 
Um, they have some very toxic venom, but getting bitten by them is not that that takes some doing. Um, but then on the other hand, if you're talking about the big, the big Bothrops, that is an animal that kills people. Um, and they're big and they're nervous and they're easily frightened. And so what I try to emphasize with those animals is when I tell people not to kill them, it's not to protect that snake. That snake is common. They live around houses. They're, you know, they're, they're all over the place. But if that snake is more than four or five feet long, if you're close enough to kill it, you're putting yourself at risk. And as long as you're four or five feet away from that snake, you're perfectly safe. But as soon as you're less than that, now your risk is going up and uh, there's not any benefit to killing that animal that's worth the risk associated with it. Mm -hmm. So it, the message depends on what it is we're talking about. So people are very concerned with what you actually keep yourself. Oh, yeah. In the chat, ah. they're, they're interested ah. in what you keep. <laughs> What I keep. Um, so I have kind of an endless parade of, uh, of species that come through the office. Um, I have kept long term, I've kept, um, you know, all the common pit vipers in the area. I don't tend to keep both rubs for very long um, because it's a higher risk animal. But, you know, then again, if I came across a Bushmaster, I might hang on to that for a while. That's a pretty special mm -hmm. animal. Um, I tend to hang on to things that are either exceptional specimens for some reason, um, either they're, you know, brilliantly colored or an unusual pattern. Uh, you know, for example, we have, there's some eyelash vipers in some populations that are striped and lots of people don't even know that eyelash vipers come in a striped, there's a striped phase. And so when I first saw those, that blew my mind. And that um, is as adults are striped? No, they're 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 born striped, and they stay striped, and they stay striped. Hmm. Um, but I keep um, so I've kept uh, you know I kept all the common vipers. I guess with the exception of uh, atropoides, the jumping vipers, I haven't I haven't kept those for any long period of time. I don't know what those are, but they sound terrifying. Um, jumping vipers are they're a short, fat little viper. They almost look like if you you put a bushmaster in the wash and it shrank and it became short and fat. They look a little bit, a little bit like that, but they're called jumping vipers because they, they strike so fast with so much force that they'll tend to slide across the ground, uh -huh. and their their strike speed is is really something you have to see. It's just like teleporting. Um, uh, so those are those are around, uh, and those are around my area, and I just haven't, you know, I've run into them, but I haven't kept them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I coral snakes I will sometimes hang on to, and if I can find something to feed them, I'll. I'll hang on to those for a little while. I love, I really love coral snakes. They're, they're a pleasure to have around. Um, feeding them is difficult. Would their um, natural prey be other snakes? It's almost always other snakes. We have um, some that will take frogs sometimes, and some will take another amphibian called Sicilians. We have these very large purple Sicilians that are, um, that are common around the wet forest. And, uh, one of the corals, uh, the bicolored coral, uh, Microsis multifasciatus, is a specialty feeder on, on those Sicilians. Uh, but for the most part, coral snakes are snake eaters, and so finding a supply of, you know, feeder snakes that I would be willing to sacrifice to the corals is, you know, that it, it's pretty hard to find, and they will generally not touch lizards. I have a pretty ready supply of skinks and geckos, and for the most part, they are not interested in those at all. Um, but I've kept, uh, you know, interesting colubrids that I come across, some weird things that people may have never heard of. Um, 
Skullicophus. There's a, one called a centipede eater that's a black and orange and white banded snake. It's a that they call like it's this cool weird or long nose snake. I think I've seen those before. Yeah, so they they're sometimes called harlequin snakes. Um, they look strangely similar similar to a variable ground snake in the U.S. and to an elapid, strangely enough, in South Africa called Homerosalops. Um, but there's this brilliant, beautiful little colubrid. Um, those are cool. I get a lot of bird snakes, uh, formerly known as sustis, now they're frindonax. Uh, I get lots of those. I get uh, spilotes, big tiger rat snakes occasionally. Um, the last snake that got a piece of me was one of those a few weeks ago. They're not um, for found a big nice. se- so. No, they're not super friendly. They're... Um, <laughs> They are, they're decidedly hostile. Um, but I, in the middle of the day, found one stretch out across the road in the neighborhood and decided that that neighborhood was probably not the best place for him. And mm-hmm. so I caught him and relocated him and he got a pretty good piece of me. Um, and then we get, we get weird stuff. Like we have tricolor tantillas. Um, like in the U.S. you have black-headed snakes and down there, another species in that genus is a tricolor that looks, you know, I guess passingly like a milk snake. Um, and we do have, we have milk snakes. We have three species of milk snakes there. One of them, one of my favorite snakes are black milk snakes, mm-hmm. uh, used to be triangulum gaije, which are, they're up high and at about 18 months old, they turn completely jet black, like an indigo snake. Um, super, super cool snakes. Um, and large. So I love those. Uh, yeah. They're a big, they're a big king snake. They're, you know, five and a half, six feet long and fairly, heavy. fairly heavy body. They're nice big snake uh i really like those a lot but i'm always fascinated by anything i've never seen before mm-hmm. so um you know somebody will call and say i've got this weird little snake and what is it and every once in a while i uh, i get something that i can't readily identify because it's it's coloration happens to not be well documented and it's not easy to recognize um and so those are always fun uh to be in a place where you're getting lifers once a month is is pretty cool yeah, I'd probably pick up a, what I thought was a milk snake and die or something. <laughs> this is a coral snake, so. Yeah, well, we have we have well, we have uh, we do have colubrids that look a lot like coral snakes, including the, rules the color don't sequence. Apply that, anymore. No, no, no. The rules, the the rule that the dreaded rhyme that people are familiar with in the U.S. Um, becomes unreliable in Latin America. And it's in fact, it's not totally reliable in any country in Latin America. And the farther south you go, the worse it gets. And by the time you get to Costa Rica or even southern Mexico, uh, there's plenty of species where it just completely falls apart. There's coral snakes that don't look anything like coral snakes. There's there's colubrids that look exactly like coral snakes. And so, um, you know, you really have to be able to identify something before you put your hands on it. Um, Okay. I've said this a lot, but I have two more questions. But one is from the chat. Um, okay. Lily said, why do some people say to constrict the area that you got bit with a rag and some people say not so to? So like tourniquet above your snake. Oh, tourniquets. Oh, okay. So this could that could lead to a, a very long discussion. Um, in our area and in the U.S., there's it, it, it's a never do thing. Never, ever do it. Because typically... What you would be doing, if you have an envenomated limb and you cut off circulation to that limb or severely restrict it with a tourniquet, uh, you're, there's a good chance that that's going to end up being amputated. So that is never, ever, ever um, in the U.S. Um, 
I guess you could probably concoct some scenario where it might make sense, but there's generally, if you're, you're, you're within a couple of hours of medical care, there's absolutely no reason to do that. Um, in other parts of the world, if you could be a day's travel and you, you know, you might be in a situation where sacrificing a limb to save a life might be a reasonable thing to do. You know, that, that there are scenarios in other parts of the world where that, that might play out, but in the U.S., that's not the situation we have. So to answer the question, why do some people recommend it? They recommend it because it's been a traditional thing. People didn't know any better, mm -hmm. but it's bad advice. I mean, that's traditional to the fact where you suck out the venom too, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, that is not only is yeah, the cutting and sucking is not only useless, but it's actively harmful. It, it exacerbates the local damage. And you know what's so don't do that either. That uh, the cobras in my garden. There's pictures of Bill Haas, I believe, on a bite doing like suction cups and shit. On the yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we we know we know more about that now. Right. Um, you know, it's been able to be properly studied now, and it's it's super clear that it doesn't provide any benefit. And there's at least some decent evidence that it it exacerbates the harm. So I guess what no, would be... No, you didn't let Go me ahead. ask that. Sorry, I keep question. saying I have two questions and I get my first one out and the off. second one never gets answered. Um, okay, so my second question is, what are your thoughts on venomous snakes at shows? Well, um, here's the way I think about them at shows and private keeping in general. I think you have to have a good reason to restrict people's rights. I don't like the idea that we have no rights unless they're given to us. I think we have the rights to do what we want as long as there's a good reason to take those rights away. And so from that standpoint, there's not, you know, there's, there's plenty of goof ups that have happened in, in the venomous community. And there's things that, you know, people have been sold things they shouldn't have been sold and people have sold things that they shouldn't have sold. Um, but I think that, those have not risen to the level that it justifies, you know, statewide restrictions or anything like that. I think it, uh, a licensing program like you see in Florida makes a lot more sense than prohibition. Prohibition tends to make things invisible. So you end up with things like cobras in apartments in New York City where they're, where they're illegal and, but they're completely off the radar because they're not, you know, they're not licensed. Um, so, as that relates to venomous animals at shows, there are still shows in various parts of the country, Texas notably, where you can st you can buy gaboon vipers and you can buy cobras and you can buy you know eyelash vipers or anything that you're interested in. You can buy them, and I think my overriding principle is that unless there's a good reason to take those rights away from people, they should not be restricted. And I don't think you can make a case that. Um, that the, the threat to the public, the threat to people other than the keeper right. is it rises to the level that it justifies restriction. Mm -hmm. And how much was that a careful enough way to answer that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. So as far as if you are a private keeper, um, what are your resources for any venom? I mean, if you're keeping something, is it smart to keep a gaboon viper in Kansas or like what are kind of smart, um, rules to keep if you're a private keeper basically oh boy um so uh when you're talking about antivenom for exotics that is an especially 
sensitive topic because the overwhelming majority of private keepers who keep exotics do not have their own antivenom. And in fact, most of them don't know where their antivenom is going to come from in the event of an accident. Um, typically what happens is there's a 911 call. Um, there is eventually a call to poison control. Poison control can look up the nearest source of antivenom, assuming they have a, a, a valid ID on what, what bit the person. They can look that up on an antivenom index that keeps track of what all the zoos have in various areas. But my sore spot with that is even if a zoo has it, that, zoo, that zoo's antivenom is not yours yeah. to take. It's not a public resource to be plundered. Yeah, and it puts the, the zoo's staff at risk. And so that's, to me, part of personal responsibility is if you're going to keep these animals, you need to do what it takes to get the, you know, to get licensed to import the antivenom. Mm -hmm. And if it costs, you know, if you're going to keep a king cobra and it costs $120 a vial and you need to have, you know, 20 vials of that antivenom, then, you know, your $1,000 for the cobra and $2,500 for antivenom is just part of the cost of ownership. Right. And unfortunately, that is something that is badly neglected. Um, I do not think it would be unreasonable that private keepers be either required to have their own antivenom or to participate in a co-op where, say, for example, all the venomous keepers around San Antonio pool their resources and buy antivenom for the snakes that they're keeping. That makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense to me. Um, it does not seem to me to be very responsible to rely on somebody else's antivenom that isn't yours. It's not there for you. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not personal responsibility. And what's the shelf life typically on something like that on antivenom? Uh, usually it's around three years. Um, one of the arguments for keeping, if you're going to keep natives, at least start with, uh, or keep venomous to start with natives is, uh, that's what crowfab is for. And the hospitals in snakebite country are going to have crowfab and you don't have to worry about stocking that yourself. Um, but if you're, you're importing it yourself and you're keeping it you know, refrigerated, it's good for, well, it's good for a lot longer than the official shelf life, assuming that it doesn't get contaminated. Um, but the official shelf life is usually in the range of three or three and a half years. Um, although antivenom that's five and six and eight and 10 years old has been used. And as long as it's not bad, um, it might have lost a little bit of its potency, but the benefit is still greater than zero. Right. And how many vials would you keep on hand if saying you're a keeper with, you know, king cobras or something like that? How many vials would you keep on hand just in case? Wow. Uh, well, obviously, it depends on the size of the snake and the species. I picked um, like the biggest for a king cobra for no reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you you picked one of the few snakes that can actually have you dead within an hour. Yeah. Um, for a king, for a king, I think I would I would be somewhere in the the twenty vial range Ooh. before I felt like I was adequately covered. Um, but you know, if it's if it's a hundred and some dollars a vial, you're looking at you know somewhere between two and three thousand dollars to bring that in. Uh, overall, that's not, you know, considering the cost of a king cobra and what it costs to maintain a king cobra, uh, that's an expensive snake to get and it's a, an expensive snake to feed. Mm. Um, you know, that's that's part of the cost of ownership. It's like, you know, if you're going to you're going to have a car, but you can't afford to put gas in it or can't put tires on it or you can't afford to insure it uh, now, then you probably don't need to have that car. Absolutely. And then what other kind of. Um... 
things have you seen because you've obviously gone to so many venomous collections what are some protocols that you see that you deem necessary as far as caging as far as the room goes and everything like that well the 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 kind of best practices there are the is that the cage itself needs to be escape proof and the room that the cage is in needs to be escape proof meaning that if something happened to get out of a cage that it cannot get out of the room and so there's ways that the doors can be um, you know that that they conceal completely, um, and there's various ways people have done that. But uh, the real the objective you want to achieve is you ha- you want to have escape proof primary containment, uh, meaning the cage, and escape proof secondary containment uh, in the room. And so the, both the cages and the room should be locked. Um, it should be uh, you you should have um, a pre-existing relationship with an emergency room doctor that you've yeah, that you've talked to beforehand, um, showing up in the ER, never having talked to anybody at the hospital before, is not a way to be prepared. Um, you can have all the protocols you want, but um, even a, a written protocol, if you haven't discussed that protocol with your doctor, it's it's of no use whatsoever. They're not going to take a second look at it. So having a relationship with a doctor is kind of the second thing. So uh, I, maybe the three three most important thing is proper housing, primary, secondary containment, proper handling, where your hands off with the animal uh, as much as you can be, and it never has an opportunity to bite, or whether it bites is never left up to the snake. It's always under your control. And the third is that in the event of an emergency, you are able to fall back on a relationship that you've already developed with an ER doc who's willing to you know, willing to deal with a very unusual kind of injury that's going to be time sensitive when it comes in. Those are three really important factors, I think. I've seen so many different things. It's hard to say um, what is proper handling is because there seems to be different styles of thinking. Um, Like who would be a good person to model yourself after or to look up, even if it's on YouTube or the internet? Well, if you you look at people who have worked an entire career with no bites. Um, those are always who I think are the, my favorite people to learn from. Um, uh, as far as people who are in the film, there's a, a number of people who've gone their whole careers with no bites. Uh, Bry Loist up at Indian river, uh, you know, Jeff Fobb at Venom one, uh, you know, no bites, Dino Ferry at Jacksonville, no bites. Um, I have cannot claim to have handled the quantity of snakes that they have, but I've had no, uh, front fang uh, venomous bites. And then there's other very, very good handlers um, who are, are featured in the film. People like Terry Phillip. I have immense respect for Terry. Um, and I don't know, I don't think you could do a better job of a mentor than somebody like, like Terry. Um, but I don't get real, um, I don't get real picky about, you know, this kind of hook versus that kind of hook or tongs versus no tongs. I think ultimately what you want to achieve is that the snake's head is always under your control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that whether the snake bites you is never left up to circumstance or it's never left up, it's never left up to the snake. Um, but the goal of good handling is that the snake never has the opportunity to bite you. And you, you'll hear all, over and over again that, well, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And I think that's absolutely nonsense. I reject that completely. Mm-hmm. Um, because plenty of people have gone their entire careers without ever having a dangerous bite. And I would like to go the rest of my life working with these animals without ever having a, 
you know, without ever having a, uh, a medically uh, significant accident. Mm -hmm. And it's doable. Absolutely. So what would be what you would consider a good starter? Would it be something I see a lot of people start with things that are native and then I see a lot of people start with things like eyelash vipers or small, small arboreal snakes. Also, let me preface this, that he's asking this for other people because he's never getting one. <laughs> well, there's, you know, if you're working with small, uh, small native species, so copperheads are a really good example. So of the North American pit vipers, they're the ones that are, you know, generally they're the ones that are least likely to deliver a, a lethal bite to you. Um, it hurts a lot, uh, but with, you know, with rapid treatment, they tend you know, usually you, you get by with without even a whole lot of tissue damage. So in the U.S., uh, copperheads are not an unreasonable choice. Um, uh, I like mangrove snakes as training snakes because they are, they are constantly trying to bite you. And if they do get a hold of you, you'll feel it. Um, and, and, they're, and they're difficult. They're, they're a snake that's big, and they're, they're challenging to hook. Um, Eyelash vipers, I would say, eyelash vipers are one of the easiest snakes I've ever dealt with, even though they're arboreal, because they're not very big. And so if you have a, you know, you have a 30 or 36 inch hook, you know, that animal is always at a distance that it's, um, you know, it, it's always at a distance that's safe to handle. They can be a little bit nippy, uh, but for the most part, if you handle them slowly and gently, they're not, they're not an especially difficult animal to work with. Um, not like some other arboreal vipers. Um, Eyelash vipers, people do sometimes get surprised by their reach. They can put just a little bit of the end of their tail around a branch to hang on to and launch the entire rest of their body at you. Um, so sometimes that reach catches people by surprise. But again, they're not very big snakes. Um, I don't think I've ever seen a wild one much over two feet long. Sometimes you, you'll have three-footers in captivity, but a three-foot eyelash viper is a – truly, that's a big girl. That's a monster. Mm -hmm. The one thing that um, scares me, I see most people start off with like a gaboon viper because everyone loves a gaboon viper. That's that's fucking. That's insane. absolutely insane. <laughs> that's no. A, 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 what if you've if you've ever seen a bitus and all all the bitus can do this, but rhino vipers, gaboon vipers, puff adders. Um, you know, they're you, you're sitting there with a snake that's ten pounds of muscle with nothing to move but itself, and they can explode in a way that is. It is hard to describe until you've seen it happen. Um, you know, they can pretty well bite anything, you know, within a radius of their body length from just about any direction. They are, uh, that's a, that is a formidable snake. And they get big. You know, you might buy a baby gaboon and, you know, six or eight years later, the thing is five and a half feet long. Um, that's a snake. You know, we, one of the patients that we had die in Guinea died of a gaboon bite. He Blood out of his intestines twelve hours after he was bitten and, and died. Um, and you know, people think of this as a, a starter snake. I think you're you're absolutely out of your mind if you think that's a starter animal. Yeah, I don't want to get bit by something with teeth as big as its fangs, even if it's not venomous. Let alone right. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, if you want to, you want to really learn your hooking and handling skills. Things like Trebos, Corallus, right, any of the Corallus say, are... We're already contemplating a basin, but like when you think about those teeth... Yeah, our Corallus as far... And I mean, something like even, a, you know, an emerald, I don't want to get bit of just because of the teeth size, but the attitude yeah. of the Amazon... It's a big disincentive. Is... 
Yeah. So you have, you have things like there's, there's racers, there's, you know, big Asian rat snakes like Patias that are, uh, that are a real handful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and until you feel really good and really comfortable using tools, hooking animals in and out. Um, I personally think that learning to use your tools, uh, getting comfortable with tools um, to the point that y- the use of tools is automatic. You know, I see no problem learning on snakes that are, you know, that are real defensive and maybe a little bit nasty. Um, you know, tree bows and mangrove snakes are, are probably pretty good for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're not, you know, they're not life-threatening animals, but you'll, there still will be a price to pay if you get tagged by them. Right. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, you don't want to get, don't want to get sloppy about it. Yeah. I don't think there's anything as close to rattlesnakes as my pines are, as far as they never calm down. They always, you know, S up and rattle and do the whole defense thing. It's like, that's basically having a rattlesnake without having to ever get bit by one. Yeah. Or ever touch it. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, I mean, there's no, I, I can't, unless you have to do some kind of veterinary procedure or, and even that, you know, you, that's what tubes are for. Uh, the idea of ever having to put your hand on the snake is, that's largely imaginary. There's, there are very few situations where that's ever really required. Right. And you know what? I, people say, well, you don't understand the connection I have with the animals. And you know, look, I, I totally get the desire to handle snakes, even venomous snakes. I understand the desire. I get it. Uh, because I think there's, you know, that is a, that is a cool experience, but it's not, uh, something that ever outweighs the risk of a dangerous animal. Yeah. I'm sorry, but your feelings never come into play when you're dealing with venomous snakes or any, even my corn snakes. I know that they don't love me. Motherfuckers don't go hang. No, they don't. Your rattlesnake definitely doesn't love you. No, no. I mean, they're, they're, they're not working on the same level as your dogs. Um, right. No, they, they might dislike you as much as your cats. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of a love, hate, indifferent. They're either indifferent no or they hate love. you. Yeah, it is they indifferent or know. hate. They don't yeah. love you. <laughs> like... No, I, they, the idea that uh, I think people imagine that they have special relationships with, with, with snakes is, I think that's almost completely imaginary it's like having a relationship with fish right. it just makes or something you and feel there, good. there are so some centered. yeah it, it makes them yes, feel better too. it makes you feel good yeah and it makes you feel now there there are certainly some snakes that are really smart king cobras are are one that is always called out as a an exceptionally smart snake and there's i think there's plenty of evidence that they do things like recognize their keepers and right. behave differently um for this person than they would for that person um but that's you know, that doesn't mean that, uh, that they're going to cut you some slack just because you're the guy who feeds them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that just doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Absolutely. Well, right. Now that we're winding down, um, is there any way that, um, people can get in touch with you or where they can find the venom interviews if they want to watch the film? Sure. Well, uh, it's available, uh, in two, two ways right now. Uh, the venom interview, if you go to the venom interviews.com, that's kind of the best place to start. And um, in addition to things like a blog and all the information about the cast and uh, so forth in the film, there are links where you can buy the film. If you want a physical copy, it's still available on Blu-ray. There are still uh, a limited number of copies left, but there are still some, uh, still some in stock. The DVDs are now officially sold out. Um, so the DVD format is, is gone. 
Uh, Blu-rays are still available, but it is the feature film is available streaming. Um, and so, and I think that's, that's only about $8. So um, if anybody was holding out for, you know, because they don't want to deal with physical media or uh, it, it is available streaming on Vimeo and the link to that is on the venom interviews.com. That is awesome. And is there anything else that you want to get out there before one last thing to say? Oh, I, I would say, um, you know, props to you guys for doing a show like this and for, um, you know, one of the things that I've tried to emphasize, uh, to, to the Herp community is nobody's going to produce good quality programming for us. We have to do it ourselves. Totally. And so I've kind of been, I've been beating the drum about, you know, we have to be our own media and be our own media. And, um, you know, if, if, even if you're out there, you're making five minute videos or 10 minute videos, we need to be our own media because nobody's going to do it for us. And so props to you guys for doing that. Thank you. very much. Right. Okay. That's too much. Thank you. Ray. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Ray. Um, thank you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And thank you everyone who's participated in the chat and, and oh, thanks for keeping up with our like noobish venomous stuff because we're not that we're not expert we're not even novices <laughs> in venomous. Oh. I watched your movie, well, so I'm an expert. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I, uh, I I appreciate that, and I'm I'm you know I've the things that I've learned I've learned from other people as well. So I'm happy to share what I know, and uh, there's plenty plenty more for me to learn too. Awesome. Um, okay, so Ray, we're going to talk to you for a little bit after, but we're going to go off the air for the rest of the world. The rest of the world. Okay. Uh, rest of the world, thank you. <laughs> Next week, I believe same time. Yeah, I don't even know who's Next, oh, well, it's we'd have to calendar. flip the calendar because <laughs> next week. Oh, wait. No, there's just, still the... I just didn't write it in. Oh, okay. We don't know his, no, it's, um. Ooh. oh my God. Is it Howard? It's, <laughs> no, it's. Holy shit, Forrest! It's, uh, like, I'm, I'm just giving I'm up gonna, all I don't of want him to be guests. listening. Selective scales. Um, oh, it's Tony. It's Tony. It's God, Tony. I couldn't he's think a... of his name. That's terrible. He's I'm gonna, such an awful person. And he's gonna buy a copy of the Venom. Yes, Tony Drum, yeah. Selective Scales. He lives in Killer, Texas. I can tell you so much about him. I just couldn't think of his name. <laughs> See you next week, Tony. And he'll be here. Like that's actually... that's Carpondros. Carpets yes, to Condros. And he'll actually Blasphemy be in, in most the apartment. So that'll be cool again to have in, someone. He'll be right here. We haven't had someone actually here in a, in a long time. That'll be um, fun. So yes. Thank you guys. Sorry, Tony. <laughs> we're I hope you're not we're going off now. We're... Okay. We, everyone else we you're supposed to say porcelainpython.com oh sorry if you want to talk to us <laughs> hit us up on facebook youtube instagram all across the board it's port city pythons the website is portcitypythons.com we have the shirts all that fun stuff that's it be on the lookout for more lockup pictures hopefully <laughs> yeah i fucking hope so these snakes we are better. ridiculous we better Okay. Control them. Okay. Uh, Later, peoples. I'm going to pause that. Oh.